Good afternoon, and welcome to episode eight of By the Numbers. I'm Borzoi, and I will be filling in for James Carlson this week and next week. And as always, the co-host we have here is Alex McNabb. How you doing, Alex? Hey, what's going on? I thought you were on the last episode, too. <laughs> that's my new favorite meme. That's what, that's what the comment <laughs> section said. <laughs> it's right there on the art show art by the numbers by James Carlson and Alex McNabb. It could gaslit me into thinking that you had been on the show and I was just like, oh, shit. Well, I guess that was, was Borsley last week. It wasn't James. Okay. okay. No, I'm not. I'm trying not to be too hard on people. I get it. It just. Actually, it's probably the fact that James and I both have Michigan accents that throws his is off, quite a I bit think. stronger. His is very, very. Strong. Yeah, he's. From, I know. I know where he's from, and yeah, he would be more like because I'm from. I'm from friggin' Metro Detroit. We don't. We have such a a neutral, urban Great Lakes city accent, if you want to even call it that. That it's. It, it's not. It, it, there's a reason why people call it a non-accent. It just doesn't sound like anything. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we're going to get into a discussion that should be uh, very non-controversial. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you gave me two choices. I, were you surprised by the one I chose that I went with the more controversial I was slightly one? surprised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's I'm I studied religion in college. I I minored in comparative religion, so this is actually a topic that's been. I mean, people know I'm I'm Catholic, although people might want to get mad about that for different reasons or what they think my level of uh, devotion is. But I feel like this is a good, uh, a good way to handle this, to have a Catholic and an atheist on, on a show to discuss the sociology of religion here, basically. But I want to open with a, uh, with a quote from the problem of unbelief in the 16th century by Lucian Feb and or Feb. I'm not sure, exactly sure how it's pronounced. I like, but, this. I like this opening with quotes on this show. It's a good way to start it. Yeah. I, and people have heard me make reference to this historian before, but so this is not a new thing people have heard me say, but I have the actual quote this time. Today, Christianity is one religion among many, the most important of all to our Western eyes, but only to ours. We usually define it as a body of definite dogmas and beliefs associated with observances and rituals that have been fixed for a long time. We are not entirely correct when we do so, for whether we like it or not, the climate of our Western societies, societies is still a profoundly Christian one. In the past, in the 16th century, it was all the more so. Christianity was the very air one breathed in what we call Europe and what was then Christendom. It was the atmosphere in which a man lived out his entire life, not just his intellectual life, but his private life in a multitude of activities, his public life in a variety of occupations, and his professional life no matter what his field. It all happened somehow automatically, inevitably, independently of any express wish to be a believer, to be a Catholic, to accept one's religion, or to practice it. Today we make a choice to be a Christian or not. There was no choice in the 16th century. One was a Christian in fact. One's thoughts could could wander far from Christ, but these were plays of fancy without the living support of reality. One could not even abstain from observance, whether one, whether one wanted to or not, whether one clearly understood or not. One found one found oneself immersed from birth in a bath of Christianity, from which one did not emerge even at death. Death was of necessity Christian, Christian in a social sense, because of rituals that no one could escape. Even if one rebelled before death, even if one mocked and scoffed. In one's last moments, from birth to death, stretched a long chain of ceremonies, traditions, customs, and observances, all of them Christian or Christianized, and they bound a man in spite of himself, held him captive even if he claimed to be free, and first and foremost, they pressed in on his private life. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, it's basically like the, the water that you're swimming in. 
And yeah. that, that dovetails with something that I was reading today about people that are born non-religious and how difficult conversion is if you start off as an atheist. It's very unlikely you will pick up religion if you weren't born into a faith. And then at the same time, people that are born into religions increasingly fall out of them, usually between the ages of, I believe it's 15 to 35, somewhere around there, late teens through to about 30, mid-30s, you tend to fall out of whatever religion you grew up in is the other thing. Well, I can attest to the former because I grew up non-religious. And my family was lapsed Catholic. My parents yeah. were specifically. I had a grandparent that was uh, Russian Orthodox and a grandparent that was Lutheran. But my both my parents were, are, well, are lapsed Catholics. And yeah, I was I, raised I up, non-religiously. I grew up religious, but they changed denominations a lot. And we did quite a bit of church shopping. Which I, I guess was kind of useful to see different churches. Like we, I've even been to like a German Baptist church before, so I got quite a bit of variety. Well, that's why I did. I was interested in comparative religious uh, religion stuff. I did church shopping. I mean, I I went to Orthodox churches. I briefly went to a new one. I was much much younger. I briefly tried one of those non denominational evangelical churches. Uh, I dabbled in Buddhism. I looked into all kinds of different re- religions because the absence of it made me really want to both understand it and see if I could participate in it. And I can tell you, even now, I it's something like faith is something I do struggle with. It's I'll be frank about that. It's it's not something that I was given that was handed down to me and something I was able to practice from a young age. So it, everything for me is much more difficult because I have to force it to make it work to to get into that mode, that ritualistic mode. Right, right, right. It's it's like a lot of things in modern society. It's just hard to do it organically. It takes but, an actual effort. All right, so where do we? Even we're not just start here. We're not just here to. Yeah, but we're not here to just speak philosophically on on. No, religion. no, we're gonna, we're, we're, gonna be, we're making it. we're making sociological observations. We're not going to be getting into theology. We're not. This is not a deep dive on the origins of of Christianity or anything like that. No, we're we're examining. Uh, Christianity in the modern age is a sociological phenomenon. We're looking at data that to get an idea of what the trends are looking at. Right, right, right. Now, we're gonna, looking like right now, kind of, kind of like a snapshot of what is happening in Christianity. I don't know what made me start looking into this, but I, I became more and more curious as I went down the rabbit hole. Um, I think I was starting with the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church, because they're undergoing a schism right now, and all of the major denominations are go, undergoing the same kind of schism mostly based around the issue of gay marriage. And I know that in the United States, the major denominations, I I think that the the largest proportion of their congregations and churches are generally accepting of gay marriage pretty much across the board. Well, I have data on that. This is a little bit older data, and this is data you're probably familiar with. So I have two different uh, Pew Research studies that we're going to be looking at and examining. One's about the is um american trends in the last couple years but then there's this big famous study from that's about going on about 10 years old now so it's a little bit older uh so take you know take the data off a grain of salt but i can i think we can extrapolate that the trends are not going to be that much different there might be a margin i would say there might be a margin of error like anywhere from five to ten percent within any of this stuff but it's I don't see any dramatic changes really changing in this data from the last 10 year, uh, five, 10 years. So 
this is the it's called the religious landscape yeah it's called the religious landscape study this oh, was yeah. conducted between 2007 and 2014 i know you're very familiar with it and they broke it down by a lot of different stuff i had, i have tabs pulled up for importance of religion in one's life uh, attendance at religious services political ideology views about homosexuality and views about same-sex marriage so uh, I can give you. Uh, I'll just disregard some of the non-Christian stuff here because, like, they're such a ne- they're such a negligible part of the population. Their numbers don't matter at all. So right, right. Catholics in this uh, in this study from you know again 2007 to 2014, 57 percent uh, strongly in favor of same-sex marriage. Uh, evangelical Protestants were 28 percent strongly in favor of. So, and I believe they're going to be the other outside of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're probably going to be the lowest one on here. Uh, historically, black Protestant, 40% strongly in favor of same-sex marriage. Uh, like I said, Jehovah's Witnesses, 14%. Jewish, 77%, which is then surprising <laughs> there. Mainline Protestant, which is which is obviously what you're looking at here, is 57% strongly in favor of. Mormons, 26%. Orthodox Christians at 54%. Whoa. So that one, does, like, a lot of people don't, you know, because Orthodox Church, and this, I have personal experience with with several different Orthodox churches. My Part of my family is Russian Orthodox. I went to a Greek Orthodox Church and an Antiochian Orthodox Church and a Russian Orthodox Church at various parts of my life at different times. Uh, Greek Orthodox, which tend to be, I don't know if the, if the Russian Orthodox, which includes the converts usually, has overtaken the Greeks just yet, but the Greek Orthodox Church was historically the largest Orthodox Church in the United States, and they're very liberal. They're, Greeks in the United States have a reputation for being very liberal. Well, I mean, liberals in the United States have a reputation for being very liberal. Um, yeah, so at the United Methodist Church, uh, I just mean like as, as, a, as like um, as an ethnic group, they they kind of stand out amongst your yeah. uh, amongst other uh, amongst other immigrant groups at times. Although that's actually the Greek. Uh, immigrant uh, political pattern is kind of the template for a lot of these other different immigrant groups that come in. Because when you look at like Buddhist and uh, I can't remember, where's Muslim majority? No, Muslim was actually 42% strongly in favor of of same-sex marriage. But Buddhism and Hindu were both uh, strong majorities. Is that you have, they bring in these groups that are highly assimilated to the liberal political system and so they go along with that right right which that that will dovetail into another piece of research i was looking at but i I thought it was particularly interesting among the methodist church they had a vote in 2019 they were essentially going to perhaps change their rules and regulations and start allowing the ordination of uh gay pastors which they already have that but the way it works currently is they just turn a blind eye to it even though according to their own rule book you're not supposed to be doing that but because it's so heavily progressive and liberal they just overlook it but in 2019 i had a big vote about this and it failed 47 to 53 but the only reason it failed is united methodists are a global organization and it was blacks from africa that were voting against changing their constitution or whatever the specific term for this type of regulation was yeah that was that was the only thing holding them back then um, and since then, there's been an ongoing schism where you've got the more traditionalist parts of the Methodist church doing what they always do. They just take their ball and they go home and they try to split off from the church. And there was some sort of agreement. I forget again, I forget the technical uh, church jargon for this, but essentially they had an arrangement where you could, 
if I believe it was two thirds of your congregation voted on it, you could leave the Methodist church and take your church building with you. But that has also uh, not really panned out so easily lately. And there's been, there's been situations where churches have, have wanted to leave and basically been told, okay, you can leave, but we are keeping the building. So good luck. <laughs> I'd be course, very curious if uh, the Pentecostals have a similar thing going on. Because yeah, this is, this is something that, that Mike was talking about regarding another, I forget which church it was. So this is really common because the, what tends to happen in these situations. Probably the Jehovah's Witnesses, because I know you guys have talked about them before and how, and how brown they are. Yeah, because what, what happens, though, is as these religious conservatives leave, I mean, these things are democracies, it means that the progressives and liberals have a, a clear majority, and then they're able to exercise complete power over the entire church system and over the property that they own. Oh, yeah. It's, the, it's basically the, the church-state phenomenon, essentially. It's it's the same reason why you you have like set of incatists uh, within the Catholic Church and I've been to a set of incatist church before and they're always scrimping and and saving and, and begging for donations to build churches because the Vatican ain't giving them anything. Yeah, yeah. And so when I say yeah. like, when I, when I say like the church state thing is it's basically the institutional power like those that are with that state like people stay with the institutions people don't just break away and build parallel institutions right from scratch that easily rival the previous institutions. They, they don't. And in the case of the United Methodists, from what I was looking at, it appeared now there's a, substa a substantial number of Methodists that are leaving, but it's still somewhere around 20%, like a fifth of them are leaving. So the, the large and clear majority are, st and there was another church, I forget which one this was, where the same thing happened. It was an even lower number that actually left. So the 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 like bulk of the church is basically just going full left wing. They're they're embracing uh, gay marriage, things like that. Which now I find that to be kind of interesting. Like we're not going to do theology or anything, but I find it interesting that the current trend in American churches is to take on a doctrinal position that is like one hundred percent against what's actually written in their own scriptures. Like that is that's unbelievable. But that's but that's always how it's been. I mean, like yeah, the Lutherans, the Protestant, like Protestant Reformation churches, would be like, uh, well, I mean, why do you think we exist? Because <laughs> Luther's whole position was like, hey, uh, hey, church, um, none of this stuff's actually in scripture. Uh, you want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's because like they just hand wave it. Like, oh yeah, no, uh, just gonna ignore both passages from the new testament and the old testament on this issue uh god loves everybody it's okay to be gay yeah i mean it's which this is always from a theological perspective i know we said we weren't going to get into into theology this is why i mean this you okay as a christian i affirm the the truth uh the truthfulness of christian doctrine and i mean that that is part of my faith like i would be a false christian if i did not affirm that this is that you know that things have a theological truth to them, but the reality is, from a historical analysis, you have to look at Christian the development of the Christian Church, the actual Church, the the temporal Church, through basically it's the way that it, it has become part of institutions and the way that state power has shaped it. I mean, the Council of Nicaea that hammered out what Christian doctrine was going to be ha was convened by the emperor. 
the the relationship between the church and institutions of power typically it's usually been the state although in this system we have a come uh, we have a more of a diffused situation with the way that money power and corporate power uh ha- tends to have more sway in this country but that's yeah, yeah. let's just bun- let's just bundle this all together as just power like this is, we'll call that all state power because they do in- involve the state in some level the church has never been has always existed with and been directed by the state in some way or some form. Right, right. Because as we discussed uh, before doing the show, if you have the state and the church intention, then you're going to have a lot of problems. A lot of problems. You're going to want to hash that out eventually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the, and the the story of middle of the Middle Ages of Christendom has been trying to hash this out even before the Protestant Reformation, when the Germans really decided to push this issue of who was uh, of who. Who's in charge, essentially? Who who says what the faith is? Who says what the church will do? I mean, the English were were hashing this out for hundreds of years beforehand. Henry the Henry the Second, his famous incident with Thomas Becket, Saint Thomas Becket. You know, will will nobody rid me of this troublesome priest? That I've told this story before, and I'm giving a very condensed version of the history. But Henry had. Thomas appointed uh, as the Archbishop of Canterbury because he thought, like, well, we're friends. He'll do. He'll make the. He'll bring the church under my authority. There's a whole thing about basically who was in charge of of different clerical aspects, like who gets the final say in you know in um, jurisdiction issues, essentially, especially with, when it comes to punishments and 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 uh, awarding offices and the like. And uh, Thomas Beckett said, like, as soon as he was became the Archbishop, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna side with the church on this and. There was conflict right there between church and state. This yeah. has always been an issue in Christendom. I mean, uh, the saint that I that my my saint Saint Athanasius, he the reason why he gets his name of Athana uh, his title of Athanasius Contramundi, Athanasius against the world, is because he was constantly going against the emperor at a time when the Arian heresy was had a lot of, a lot more widespread support and. He was he was exiled numerous times for opposing it. It's the what doctrine is within the Christian church has kind of been has ebbed and flowed a lot, depending on what the powerful institutions determined to be. And that's why the the Protestant Reformation became a huge thing. It's like these other princes, these other state powers sided with these reformers it was a good like to them it was a good way to basically get the church off their backs and they could run their own churches i mean that's and that's ended up what henry VIII ended up doing as well with the english church it's like this is a good way to basically kill two birds with one stone we'll we'll have a church that a doctrine that's more in line with what i want and also that pesky roman church is now off my back right right i feel like there was a passage in matthew about serving two masters that might be appropriate right now <laughs> we said we were gonna do theology and we right. <laughs> we've already broken that yeah but th- this is this is actually more of a sociological thing it's like you can only have one sovereign you don't get to have two sovereigns you got two sovereigns like in the same country it's gonna be chaos it's gonna be bad yeah well you're gonna you're gonna have a fight and yeah. so there's that fight can, that fight can take a long time i mean the the religious civil wars in europe that was a this was a dialectic that had been playing out for centuries. This was a these were unresolved issues that came to an end, and it took them decades and centuries for them to resolve them. Some would say they never really did get resolved. Right. And in this situation, when we have the United States, I think we could say that there is not actually a fight. There is a retreat, a, a pitiful retreat, and it's not really working. It, it seems like we've had this happen before in the United States. I know that in the 1840s, there was a 
schism over slavery. It's how you ended up with the Southern Baptists. And today, I'm pretty sure if you were to defend slavery in any American church, they would kick you right the fuck out, <laughs> most likely. Well, I mean, yeah, churches church split over that issue completely. I mean, yeah. there's uh, Francis Fitzgerald's book on the history of the evangelicals is okay. I would not consider it. I, if I were, were to recommend it, I would not recommend it as a book for people who want to do a deep history on on the churches in the United States. I I question some of the things that she said in it, uh, in some of the conclusions she she came to, and it kind of reads more as a as a broad, breezy, light history. If you if you were to ask me, but if you have no where if you if you don't know where to start with knowing anything about Protestantism, Christianity in the United States, it gives you a brief a good a, a, a decent overall history of it it's okay as a source i just wouldn't yeah. rely upon it as a as a serious source yeah now there, the there's research uh this is from one faith no longer transformation christianity and red blue america there's research about the mentality of the people that are engaged in this very one-sided route um there's three major key observations i thought was very were very interesting first one being progressive christians are more likely to establish their identity through politics well, conservative Christians find their identity in theology. Put simply, progressive Christians see the world through a political lens, conservative Christians through a religious lens. This doesn't mean that progressives are atheological and conservatives are apolitical, while the emphasis is wildly disparate between the groups, which I think we know how that works. If you are a left-wing activist, that's like front and center, um, and your theological, like your abstract theological beliefs are going to be secondary, which in a political fight gives you an advantage versus someone who has the opposite position, right? Like yeah. If if all, if all, and, and if all you care about is being right in the, uh, in the heaven, uh, in the heavenly sense, then, you know, you'll get, th th it's the perspective of like, well, I'll be right in the end. I'll go to paradise. They won't because they're heretics and they'll burn. I mean, if that's what you want to pursue. Okay. But the, but what if this, you want, if you if heretics you, take if over? <laughs> yeah, if you but if you want a temporal church that affirms what you believe, you have you have to fight on a, on a temporal level, and, right. the, and in in temporal matters, power comes first before theology. Yeah, you I'm need sorry, the power to be able to to establish correct doctrine. Yeah, and so they say the uh, progressive Christians emphasize political values relating to social justice issues as they determine who is part of their in group. They tend to be less concerned about theological agreement. Conservative Christians, however, do not put strong emphasis on political agreement in order to determine if you were one of them. Now, that's a big weakness right there. But the conservative Christians are more likely to accept a libtard in their congregation than the other way around. The, you see this all the time, even in non-religious matters. This is how I, I cannot tell you how many boomer conservatives, it's any conservative, but I mean, I especially have boomer conservatives, of where basically they're constantly in this like negotiation of their politics with a liberal colleague or a liberal family member or or somebody else's little like they're always trying to convince them to come over to their side or convince them of their own of their worth to be treated you know decently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're on they're, the defensive. Yeah. yeah, and that's yeah. not it's not just that they're on the defensive. They're also like in like this constant nego like one sided negotiation like where they're and sometimes they do it of their own. Like I've seen them do it of their own accord. It's not like that they're just being like attacked. They'll they'll go to liberal people and try to win them over. Like I've seen them try to do the whole evangelize the conservative message to to these people. And 
this this point right here is going to go back to what you're talking about with uh, Muslims in America being more accepting of gay marriage. Uh, for this reason, progressive Christians tend to be more accepting of groups that are traditionally politically progressive, such as Muslims and atheists. So I guess Muslims in the United States are politically progressive uh, than they are of conservative Christians. By contrast, conservative Christians tend to reject Muslims and atheists as part of an outgroup. They do not necessarily reject political liberals. And that is a fatal, fatal, fatal flaw right there. Yeah, with with the with the Muslims, because there's the whole example. Well, like what about Ham, like what they've done in Hamtramck and all that. That's because they turned that into basic uh, in, into basically an immigrant haven. It's uh, if you've never been there, it's kind of hard to describe what how weird that place is now being because Hamtramck Hamtramck is an enclave within the the full city of Detroit. It, so it exists within it's. Kind of like how Lesotho, you know, is completely in, encapsulated by South Africa. It's like that. And it's basically all immigrants, all recent immigrants for the most part, maybe like maybe a couple second generation people at this point. With the Muslims that are highly in favor of gay marriage, that typically those are came in like with the earliest waves and people that are pol politically motivated within the Democratic Party. So they bring those the attitudes into their religion. But when they end up creating little immigrant enclaves for other Muslims, then you start to see the re uh, it revert back to more of a socially conservative atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the second section here, I think is going to go back to something we talked about previously before the show. Conservative Christians are more likely than progressive Christians to define political orthodoxy. Just look at the last five years to see this point proven. There was a virtual civil war among conservative evangelicals when Republican Party orthodoxy became synonymous with Donald Trump and a host of positions on immigration, poverty, racial justice, environmentalism. Uh, many conservative evangelical leaders pushed back hard at great personal cost against conservative political ideology when they saw it in conflict with biblical teaching and values. Even now, you will find theologically conservative evangelicals with major disagreements on political policy. Such is not the case for progressive Christian leaders. The only political issue where multiple bloggers differed from the general political progressive orthodoxy was abortion, authors found. And even then, the pushback was light, as if designed to highlight the harmlessness of their dissent. Their conclusion, there are more paths by which conservative Christians defy conservative political ideology than paths by which progressive Christians defy progressive political ideology. So, then this is something we, we were talking about before, I think it was this afternoon, about the progressive Christians have a sort of a, a broad, coherent position, like a political position. They, they, they have an agenda, and they're pretty much all in agreement and locked up on it, unlike... Well, I'll explain it the way that I, I did when we were trading voice messages back and forth, because what this actually, I wanted to mention this as well. One reason why Christianity, I think, has lasted longer in the United States compared to Europe is, funnily enough, because of the lack of state church. So what you saw within the Christian churches in European countries, especially those with, with state churches, is that they got the countries got liberalized and the church died from the inside out because they were just following the diktats of what was imposed upon them. Because there's no state church in the United States, you go through these intense revival periods and weird, goofy, like uh, uh, other Christian groups come up or like the Mormons and stuff like that, which is a very uniquely American phenomenon there. They go through all these different revival periods with culminating in the evangelicals, which have been the la which were the, the last real big Christian revival period we had in this country. 
but there's no state church that uh, that represents them and they have a tendency to splinter and divide even when they like kind of con- uh, coalesce like they did with the evangelicals they still have a tendency after a while then splinter and divide and go through the same process uh, again and again but again like that also leads to a lot of goofiness so mm-hmm. what you're seeing now with these churches is these progressive these liberal Christians, they ha- like across every single church, they have the same vision, and it essentially is a state, uh, 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 well, a state power diktat of this is the ideology that's going to be uh, imposed upon the church. They agree with it, and it's all the same, whether it's Catholic, Pentecostal, uh, Methodist, Evangelical. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like all of these liberal Christians believe the exact same. Thing. They have a unified, unitary ideology and vision, whereas for everybody else, for all the conservatives, they're conservative towards their specific theology. They're conservative towards their specific church, and there have been attempts made to basically try to unify conservative Christians, but it's never been as strong as it was as the ideology that unifies liberal Christians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're literally all rallying behind the same flag. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the third point, and this this is the thing I think it really kind of ties everything together, is progressive Christians are more likely to see converts among conservative Christians and among non-Christians. So they're literally going around cannibalizing the so-called conservative Christians. They're not even trying to win new converts because they they don't, I guess the religion is so secondary to them, they don't really care if you come to their church. For them, it's about basically converting the, the heretical uh, right-wing conservative Christians. And converting is really just owning them. That's like they, mm-hmm. they're they being very generous. The language they're saying that they're trying to convert them. No, I, I, I've i seen how liberal Christians treat conservative Christians. It's it's about owning them. It's about mm-hmm. trying to own them on their own uh, on what they perceive to be the premises of Christian, yeah. Christianity are. Yeah, and I don't want to get the wrong idea that uh, when the progressives complete this conquest that the, 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 the churches are going to do better or anything because they're not. They're going to continue to <laughs> slide downward and gonna, their congregations will continue to dwindle. Everything is going to be going downhill, but they, they will be on like in charge of the sinking ship, as it were. Oh, the, yeah, the fate of uh, the fate of progressive or liberal Christianity in the United States is now inextricable, is now tied completely to the fate of of NATO to of the Atlanticist order right. of the American Empire. Right. Like the, you cannot separate yeah. the two now at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as as America goes, so will liberal Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the authors here noted that a substantial part of how progressive Christians identify themselves is by exposing clearly what they are not, namely conservative Christians. Yeah, it's literally just about owning the conservative Christians and be like, hey, look, we're not like them; we're better than they are. But anyway, I, th- I thought that was very interesting looking at the perspectives of the combatants here. Uh, clearly. The liberals are going to have quite a bit of a strategic advantage. So, when it comes to liberals and, and conservatives, basically in, in this in, in this paradigm we're talking about, liberals are just go with the prestige. Like they don't have to worry about what people people think because they're just going with what the prestige doctrine is. This is the this is the status powerful doctrine that's been passed down. They have internalized it. They've ingested it. They agree with it. And so they're going to evangelize it whether and whether people want to accept it or not doesn't matter. They, because the point is just to capture the institutions. They don't really care what the average person really thinks. Yeah. And the the average person um, really has sort of lost their interest in religion for the most part. That, I mean, whether you 
like that or hate that fact, it is a fact. It is what's happening in the United States. It seems to be kind of a universal trend with pretty much any kind of sufficiently modern country is that it becomes heavily secularized. And as you were saying, the United States has bucked this trend, but that's because we didn't really have our churches tied to the state. So I think we had, in many ways, kind of a, a broader market that could cater to people's desires a little bit better. So it hung on a little longer. And one phenomenon I've also noticed with conservative Christians, though, is this intense self-consciousness, as George Orwell would put it, because I'm going to read a passage from The Road to Wigan Pier here, where they think they understand how the average person is or how the average uh, uh, Christian, uh, I guess, like in this case, would be Catholic, how the average Catholic is, because this is the example that Orwell uses. But you're going to, he, you, you'll, you'll know, he wrote this in the early 30s. You'll notice a, a particular psychological pattern here of a type of people we've argued with before, McNabb. Uh, so this is from The Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell. One of the analogies between communism and Roman Catholicism is that only the educated are completely orthodox. The most immediately striking thing about the English Roman Catholics, I don't mean the real Catholics, I mean the converts, Ronald Knox, Arnold Lund, et hoc genus, is their intense self-consciousness. Apparently, they never think, certainly never, they never write about anything but the fact that they are Roman Catholics. This single fact and the self-praise resulting from it formed the entire stock and trade of the Catholic literary man. But the really interesting thing about these people is the way in which they have worked out the supported, supposed implications of orthodoxy until the tiniest details of life are involved. Even the liquids you drink, apparently, can be orthodox or heretical. Hence the campaigns of Chesterton, Beachcomber, etc. against tea and in favor of beer. According to Chesterton, tea drinking is pagan, while beer drinking is Christian, and coffee okay. is the, pur is the Puritan's opium. It is unfortunate for this theory that Catholics abound in the temperance movement and the greatest tea losers in the world are the Catholic Irish. But what am I what I am interested in here is the attitude of mind that can make even food and drink an occasion for religious intolerance. A working class Catholic would never be so absurdly consistent as that. He does not spend his time in brooding on the fact that he is a Roman Catholic and he is not particularly conscious of being different from his non-Catholic neighbors. Tell an Irish dock laborer in the sums of Liverpool that his cup of tea is pagan and he will call you a fool. And even in more serious matters, he does not always grasp the implications of his faith. In the Roman Catholic homes of Lancashire, you see the crucifix on the wall and the daily worker on the table it is only the educated man especially the literary man who knows how to be a bigot and mutatis mutandis it is the same with communism the creed is never found in its pure form in a genuine proletarian oh man if only those people and had you, internet back then yeah and I, I've, you I've encountered these people today yes on the internet <laughs> and you see that, but you also see like this, what, or i think orwell is 100 right that this is when when we get into these online discussions of of religion, because you and I like, have taken kind of trying to take the sociological perspective on this, and yes, there are believing obviously there are very believing devout Christians, but I've seen in in, in this fight against liberal Christianity that this this wanting to claim all people who self identify as Christian when I question the level of identity uh, of of uh of commonalities you actually hold with them because people have a very cavalier. I, I said this before on just Jesse, people don't like you attacking religion, but they also don't like too much religiosity. It's generally how the mode person really is in my experience. It's like, no, nobody, nobody likes to see Christianity attacked. Nobody see, likes to see, uh, Christians attacked or, or mocked and ridiculed in the way that it often is in culture. But at the same time, they also tend to avoid 
uh, effusive religiosity, and we see that at least with. Yeah, some I, I don't think there's a couple aspects. I, I think part of it is uh, nobody likes uh, fedora atheist anymore because that that's worn out. That's did, print. I mean, did they ever like them though? Right, exactly. I don't think it was ever popular. <laughs> but and then the other thing is, I think a lot of people, at least on some level, have that perception that Christianity at this point in the United States is a beaten dog. It's like, don't throw another rock at that poor dog. It's already suffered enough abuse. So, so, but you talk to some people and you like some of these people who are highly motivated by a, a, their idea of a political Christianity. And sometimes you come away with the notion that they think this country is still a majority white Christian country. Oh, and I God, have some, yeah, I, ha- I have some data on that. So first of all, well, one thing, one, one thing I want to, uh, one group of people I want to kind of uh, give it to here are people who are my fellow Catholics. Because this is something I've known for a long time, like with, you know, like the, uh, the the America First type people or people with similar sentiments to that want to do a Catholic nationalism in the United States, which as you, you being a Southerner, you know, is very, a very peculiar thing to, to, to fight for. Catholicism in the United States, absent the Mexicans, is largely a northern city phenomenon. That's for the most, not that there aren't Catholics everywhere in this country, but it's it would, the Catholic power, power centers yeah, were in the you, industrial north. It would be the equivalent of trying to do like Russian Orthodoxy or something. Like, yeah. we're going to all become Russian Orthodox nationalists. What? <laughs> some some of this comes from the fact that Catholics are v- very overrepresented amongst uh, both elite classes and functionary classes, visible functionary classes. And so, I mean, like you take a look at how how much of the Supreme Court has become Catholic. Right. That is actually is, a very owing, unusual thing. Isn't that owing though more so to Catholicism being a source of political power in Europe and and that that strength kind of even reaching as far as the United States? Well, and some it's, it's it's immigrants and and uh, having one church to network in. I mean, there's so many different Protestant churches, and they've all been damaged and fractured over the last couple centuries. That and the Jews have basically done a good job of muscling Protestants out of power. So, and Catholics actually helped them out. Helped the, they kind of teamed up with them in that in that respect. Right. To right. Yeah. And they, as, as we Protestants out. With Protestants, but, because their first impulse, anytime there's some sort of tension, is just okay. We'll split our church in half. You guys go over there, and we'll go over here. You would you would think with the way some people talk or looking at some of the people or uh, or how represented Catholics tend to be and white ethnic Catholics, I should say, tend to be represented in these types of politics. You would think, well, God, uh, uh, America must be like plurality white Catholic, or it's mm-hmm. it must be a. Maybe even a majority or just a huge minority. We're 10% of the population of the United States. White ethnic Catholics are, ten, are, are 10% of the Catholic. The Catholics are 17% of the population. That's 7% Hispanic or uh, mestizo, whatever you want to, whatever, whichever term. I know Stryker hates that term Hispanic being applied to them. Uh, yeah. It's it's 7% uh, basically south of the border and then 10% white ethnic Catholic. Right, right. And those are converting to uh, evangelical Christianity too, right? Oh yeah, increasingly. Yep, but so here's the numbers on this is uh, from. So let me go up to the top here. So this is uh, this is the latest uh, measuring religion in Pew Research Center's American Trends panel. So this is self-identification. Basically, it was I think it was like a phone sur- uh, recent phone surveys, web paper surveys produce similar estimates of religious composition of U.S. And they have a couple. If you really want to be get try to like disaggregate this data and really dig into it, because you know, that's probably the smart thing to do. 
um, you can. But I'm going to go with uh, with the numbers that the aggregated random digit dial surveys 2019 to 2020. So 63 percent of the country identifies as Christian. 28% are religiously unaffiliated and 7% were other faiths. And those other faiths were Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, and, and other. So 60, so first of all, we're working with 63% of the population being Christian, but that includes literally everybody any like of, of any race. Mm-hmm. So 43% Protestant. And that breaks down, uh, the way that breaks down is, uh, 16% is white, uh, yeah, forty-three percent Protestant, white evangelical, sixteen percent, white not evangelical, twelve percent, black Protestant, seven percent, all others eight percent, Catholic nineteen uh, percent. Oh, I, I said seventeen percent. Nineteen. It was actually nineteen percent. Whites ten percent. His uh, Hispanic quote unquote is seven percent, and then all others are two percent. Uh, Mormon two percent, and then Orthodox Christian is less than one percent of the population. So. But we got to think about these numbers here. So, sixty-three percent of the country identify self-identifies as Christian, but we got to break that down a little bit. So, we got to subtract seven percent first of all of, of the Black Protestants. That brings it down to fifty-six percent. We're talking about white Christians here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's right. how, usually how this argument is framed. So, uh, that brings it down to fifty-six percent of the population. Now, I'll subtract Hispanic Catholics, seven, which is seven percent. That brings it down to forty-nine percent. So, we're already down to a plurality. Already a plurality, and that's if you include literally everybody else. And we know all those people aren't white, and we know all those people aren't. And that, this, that those numbers are going to include liberal progressive Christians who are at odds with the with what that's we're, we're fighting for gay here. marriage. Yes, yes, and yeah. that's that's not even taking into account. Like, okay, what what's the age demogra- uh, demography of of that slice of of Christians? Like, yeah. like you know that Zoomers are about fifty percent non religious. So a lot, a lot of what you're thinking of is like the God-fearing American Christian is somebody who's, I don't know, 85 years old. Yeah. So and if you've, if you've ever looking- walked into a church, you could see that with your own eyes. You see what someone that we both know refers to as the hospice church consisting of elderly people in a dying congregation, a literal dying congregation. So the range we're looking at here of what could be conceivably called uh, white, you know, white Christians in this country, and we're, we're these are, and that's just pure self-identification. People who identify as Christian, we're not even. This doesn't even get into how devout they actually are and how you know orthodox their theology, small o orthodox their theology actually is. We're looking at anywhere from twenty nine to forty nine percent, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm. I think I'm being overly generous if I give people 49 percent because I'm. I'm basically including people of questionable races and que- and questionable politics into right, that. right, so right. Because like, let's on, let's yeah. let's say let, let's just. I'm. i This is non-scientific, but let's just knock off nine percent. We'll say. Well, and I'm, I think I feel like I'm being very fair and generous here. Forty percent. Forty percent of the country white Christian at best. And most, and oh, probably over half of that remainder there, probably like twenty five percent of that is going to be elderly. It's going to be people over yeah. the age of of sixty, and then the, the, like the 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 person that I'm sure they have in their mind being like the the Christian working man with a family uh, that goes to church every Sunday. That is a very tiny slice of the population at this point. Well, guess so. Guess the number. Uh, so get, of that sixty three percent of not no, it's not sixty three percent. It's uh. 
because they're it's the seventy two percent of the population that identifies as religious. So this rolls the other religions back into this data here. So this is a uh, percentage of U.S. adults who attend religious services and at least once a week. What do you give me? A, give me your guess on what the number is of of the people who attend religious service at least once a week. Uh, 35%. That's an excellent guess. 31%. Now, so they, they're they doing net monthly or more. So they also include right below that once or twice a month, which is 13%. So 43% of people who have a self-identification with a religion in this country attend a religious service at least once a month. Like not even half attend at least once a month. Which, yeah, which, which, want, which means that religion's just not really figuring into their day to day lives that much. Yeah, they, not, now they might have they might have a personal belief. This is why I opened up with that Lucian Fev uh, quote because they might have a personal belief. They might choose to be a Christian on some on some spectrum of it's very casual or it's very meaningful to them. There's there's a lot of stuff that's hard to capture in this data because of how personalized religion is in the United States. Now, we don't have this environment anymore where you can't escape it, which is what Lucian Feb's point was. Like It was impossible to be a non-Christian no matter what your actual thoughts were in the 16th century just because the rituals and the community aspects of it, the politics of it, invaded every aspect of your life. You could not avoid it. You are able to avoid that here in the United States, but it just means you're a non-participant in what's going on in the temporal matters. Right, right. Because the the conclusion of what you're saying just now is that if someone is looking to leverage Christianity for political power, you would better be a left-winger. That's yeah. the only way it's going to work for you. If you are right-wing, trying to organize right-wing Christians into some sort of coherent movement is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, Probably the only... The only avenues that are allowed for you are like the Heritage Foundation with the kind of with the kind of, you know, and working through some of the uh, culture war politics you're allowed uh, allowed to do as long as you're strongly aligned with Zionism. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to do you're allowed to have right wing politics as a treat if you are a Zionist, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Aside from that, the juice is not worth the squeeze because the, and it, it, as the other thing that we're noting here, the the overall decline in Christianity in America means that the available numbers that you could recruit from that pool is getting smaller and smaller every year too. Assuming you could get five of them together to agree on anything. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's also it's funny to me like this is conversion efforts are are being made. Well, the, I mean, you, it's obvious why why they're doing this, but. It, Churches are in the United States are focused more on missionary work outside the country, converting mm -hmm. those people and even bringing them in versus tr like twenty eight percent of a of a non real like if you were once a Christian country and twenty eight percent of your population is no uh, self identifies as non religious. That's not even getting into people who self identify as religious but have fallen deeply into pagan and heretical uh, habits, yeah, which, I, always I ha which always happens. I don't want to sound too mean. Okay, fine. I, I, I didn't want to. I, I can be okay with sounding mean, but this this church system has failed. If you are yeah. reduced to trying to find people that are poor enough that they're still religious, recruiting them from the third world, you've failed. Like your mission has failed. You can't even recruit your neighbor. You can't recruit your neighbor, and you're reduced to having to go abroad to do it. You've got some big problems. It used to be that because this is. 
again from a historical perspective, it was not uncommon for for things for for Christendom for people in isolated areas, people that are out, that were outside power centers to fall into heretical and pagan beliefs. It's just that it's kind of like the the mode of how people are. Like, you know, you leave them alone for a, a century, and suddenly they're they're worshiping saints as you know, kind of like quasi paganistic, you know, pseudo gods. And as a as a cleric, as a priest, you know, like that's not correct. They should yeah, yeah, be it's, doing it's like, that. I like, have to reeducate I have to reeducate them. It's like whenever I go to my dad's house, who back in the day he was a Christian. We went to church and I go there and He's got like a, a bonfire and he's got standing stones around it. And it's just completely reverted back to just being some sort of druidic Celtic uh, tribesman. It's amazing. I guess, I guess we got to bring the priests around and reconsecrate this area. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, Americans are, have shown to be very prone to magical thinking. And even it's funny because the whole cope about uh, bringing Mexicans into this country is, Oh, based Catholics, they'll you know they're going to they're going to shore up the Christian numbers. Uh, any there's no hard data. There's no like not I shouldn't say there's no hard data. There's no solidified data on this because the thing is like you can you can be Catholic and still practice this, this essentially. But uh, Santa Muerta worship is huge in Mexico, and it can be it's anywhere from five to fifteen percent of the population in Mexico practices Santa Muerta, and they they're bringing that over the border. So well, the, like, the, the other thing is that they're not just staying Catholic because that that was I ran across some research and a political analysis talking about the imported Mexicans are becoming evangelicals, which is one of the reasons they were supporting Donald Trump at one point or one of the many reasons. And the other well-known phenomena is immigrants who come to the United States quickly adopt the American pattern, which means their children are very likely to be non-religious. You give a generation or two, and what whatever traditional religion they brought with them is going to be gone. Well, it's I mean, in twenty two, so I got this uh, article on unheard. Uh, Hispanics are abandoning the Catholic Church. They were uh, they were sixty seven percent Catholic in twenty ten. Amer- the American quote unquote Hispanics. They're forty six percent now Catholic. Now, not all that's uh, not uh, is not irreligious. Uh, there's been a, a huge and successful measure to convert. Hispanics into Mormonism and Pentecostalism and evangelicalism, those three churches in particular, have seen a surge of Hispanic uh, converts both within the United States and in missionary work outside of the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, I, I forget which um, which of the Central American countries it is, not El Salvador, it might be Nicaragua, but one of them, or Nicaragua Honduras, one of the two. One of them is now fifty, basically fifty percent Protestant, because of the Pentecostals did so much, uh, did so much missionary work there, and were successful in that. Yeah, which I, I take that to mean okay, so they're going to be converting to non-religious in short order after they come here. Which probably, the other thing to, to keep in perspective too is uh, if you look at Western countries. Or you, you go to Europe or somewhere. Um, the secularism there is over fifty percent of the population in a lot of places. Like probably most of them actually. Maybe even difficult to find a country there that's actually still largely religious. So the United States is kind of playing catch up to that game. And I think the main drivers, at least from what I was looking at, it seems the conclusion you would draw is that the main drivers of decline of religiosity seem to be connected more to a general thrust of technology and modernity, not so much specific things although i think it is correct that the state 
can obviously impact us to some degree. Yeah. It, it, I think even with all, all factors being in our favor, we'd still see some level of a, of a decline, uh, unless you had a complete, unless you had some kind of complete religious environment, like the 16th century, which I don't know how you replicate that anymore. I, I think the only way you would be able to get a massive return religiosity is if you had a literal collapse and then living conditions plummeted and mortality salience became really high then you would see return of religion. But as long as the living conditions stay somewhat similar to this, it's probably going to stay on the same trajectory. It might even become worse. Um, but yeah, because there's there was peer research that a lot of people have been talking about looking at these kinds of projections because the, the, the research is very interesting. They did a lot of modeling. They looked at basically different potential ways that this could play out. Like, what if it stays on the same course? What if it gets worse? What if it's not quite as bad? And what happens if this birth rate changes over here? What if this one stays the same? But basically all the projections, it's like, I believe somewhere around 27, 2070, the United States is likely to be majority non-religious. Oh, by 2070? Yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if it's even earlier, uh, even before that, just because of the... The pace, uh, I mean, I guess this is assuming all things stay the same, which I just don't, I, I don't think uh, they will, because a lot of, like I said, a lot of American Christianity's fate is tied to America itself. And I don't know if there's going to be an America in 2070, but right. let's say like that there is, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this country's majority irreligious within 20 years. Yeah. Just because of how, how much they're accelerating the, the propaganda and the institutional capture of churches. Yeah, yeah, because they, they talk about switching patterns among young adults. Because uh, I I believe the 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 way it generally works now is that like two thirds of young adults are going to switch off from whatever Christian faith that they started with from their parents and just become non-religious or switch to a different religion entirely. Um, and then what was the other thing? The if you're if you're basically if you're born non-religious, then your chances of adopting Christianity are effectively zero. So you combine That's, these two factors together and with so many people, you know, being born non-religious. Yeah. It, the, the trajectory is not good and I don't really see that changing unless something really crazy were to happen. Well, that's, that's why I, I did what I did because I grew, I grew up non-religious. I grew up in a family of mixed denominations, none of whom went to, went to church essentially. And so when I knew I was having a child, I said to my wife, like, we we're not doing mixed denominations. We're going to be one denomination and we're going to give him the opportunity to go to church and learn these rituals and to learn faith and learn how one can be religious, because that was something that we didn't really have. And knowing how hard that's it is to develop when you're an adult, I would rather him have that him have the ability to develop that when he's young and then have his own develop his own consciousness towards it later on than having him feel like he was denied that and having to try and brute force his way into into developing that faithful consciousness yeah that's a good point that's a good point yeah because you're just not going to have like the the equipment installed to to be even be religious if you wanted to be later on if you don't have some kind of example of it from a young age and i i think ritual is important i think ritual is very important to uh, to anybody's experience as a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I spent uh, probably an hour or two hours earlier, just kind of catching up on a lot of this stuff, looking at various different 
videos where you've got people kind of chronicling what's going on. There's been discussions of the the seven sisters, you know, the big denominations in the United States and how essentially every one of them has this massive schism over LGBTQ issues and they're all swinging really hard to the left. Um, the, the, the interesting wrinkle was the Southern Baptists have had more tension over things like women in churches and, uh, critical race theory. Yeah. They had a huge, they had a big resolution that came out a few years ago, basically where, uh, they affirmed critical race theory, essentially. I remember yeah. when we covered this years ago when I was still on the religion podcast. Yeah. Yeah, and to, to me, this kind of creates a, a problem. This is where people might get a little aggravated. But if the face of Christianity becomes gay flags, gay marriage, drag queen, uh, Sunday school hours, at some point, if you were to tell someone that you're a Christian, they're going to assume that you're a political liberal. They're going to assume that you're in favor of that kind of stuff. If you just say, oh, I'm a Christian, I believe in God. Like, oh, okay, so you go to the fag church. Yeah, maybe I, I could see that like they say it in a very uh, nondescript way, like where they don't specify mm-hmm. like, their yeah. denomination. Like I'm an Orthodox, I'm a Catholic, I'm I'm an evangelical. Although even ev- evangelicals are ha- have their ha- have a lot of inner turmoil going on right now. They're being infected with the with the critical race theory stuff as well. And yeah, yeah, well, because I think people take it for granted that uh, that there's some sort of moral authority from saying hey, I'm a I'm a God fearing Christian. But eventually, on a long enough timeline, it's not even all that long, it's a relatively short timeline, the pronouncing that you're Christian is going to necessarily bring in associations with this kind of stuff, because that is now the face of Christianity. I know that Mike likes to talk about all the time, like, oh, you see a nice church, there's always going to be a gay flag outside. It will not take that long for that to eventually dominate the public consciousness, at least in terms of how you perceive what it means to go to a church. Like the idea of well, like mean, the, yeah, the, that's the best illustration right now. The state of Christianity, the night, the, at the nicest churches, the nicest, most historic churches in the country are more likely to have the worst, most regime loyal politics. And you'll find the most quote unquote based or the, or small Orthodox, uh, Christians practice and they having their sermons in whatever commercial space they can rent. Yeah, and I'm not going to say that there's not going to be uh, churches that are aligned correctly with the, the right theological positions. They're maybe even ostensibly right-wing and politically conscious, but they're going to be such a tiny minority. They're they're essentially going to be heretical sects. Oh, well, the problem, I don't know, is that, I don't know if they're going to be like a tiny minority. It's that they're going to be just dis, uh, disempowered and dispossessed. They're going to be... They're going to have everything, you know, when when the schism eventually happens, they're, they're more likely to lose out in terms of who gets all the stuff. And they're going to be the ones that are in, again, like these commercial spaces. They'll be in some mm-hmm. kind of um, industrial park where they're having their uh, their theologically correct service. Yep. Yep. I've, I've, I've seen it locally. I've actually seen this kind of thing unfold. Yeah, all of the institutional power is going to be with the people who align with what what state power wants, the ones that are the NATO church, <laughs> the church of yeah. NATO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so instead of, instead of uh, uh you know, instead of being trinitarians, they're atlanticists. It's the atlanticist <laughs> church. Yeah, and it's, until I had really started to look into this today, I'd not really grasped how widespread it was and just how how far everything had already become rotten. 
but it is it is really deep especially with the Methodists. i was looking at them i was like oh wow so it's only 20 percent that are kind of sticking to their guns and uh, they're kind of getting their butts kicked over here when it comes to the church properties so i'm trying to remember, figure out what they i can't i wish i could remember which country it is in in central america that's basically half pentecostal now but what you're seeing what you're going to be seeing with as well that this is a big problem that we need to talk about on a well because these are people who identify as conservative and obviously we are not conservatives but so one thing you're going to see with these people who identify as conservative is they're going to they're going to they're going to try and take the path of least resistance oftentimes and they're also going to do what's most expedient which is instead of trying to fight on the the hard ground here they're just going to try to get a little bit of cover by importing in their co-religionists from different countries i mean like i i I harp on like the pentecostal church uh because they are growing in across the world there's that central american country there's also three states in northern india which are majority christian they're in it's largely pentecostal and the temptation is going to be well fighting the religious fight here uh against the liberals is hard and we can't seem to uh convert the uh people within this within our own country i don't know how hard they're trying but why don't we just import why don't we just bring people over here and then we'll boost our numbers that way oh yeah because well, so let's, are, let's just bring the let's just bring the in the indians and the central americans over here they're pentecostal they'll boost be, our numbers it's gonna be the same people that tell you that you should just get away from asia it'll be those kinds of people yeah this yeah uh like i i had my mind blown whenever i found out today the Angl- the anglican church of england is now mostly african it's the african countries that have more anglican churches bigger congregations in england itself yep let's see and that's the essential issue here this is like this is something that this is yeah, why we, like as much as, as much as people hate the religion and health red this is why it's never going to go away because the, these are questions of institutions that exist in our country and wield power and there are demographics involved in this that are outside our demographics so these are issues that will never go away as long as we are we, as long as we are disempowered and aren't able to define our own destiny yeah, no, I, I think this kind of this larger struggle of having institutions captured by left wing influences is it, it obviously goes far beyond churches. I mean, it extends to basically every yeah. avenue of life, uh, even things like video games and miniature war gaming. It invades that. Yeah. And, it's, and you run into the same exact problem of I just want to I just want to watch my movie. I just want to play my game. I just want to paint my miniature. I don't want to have to fight a political battle every time I want to engage in in something that's ostensibly supposed to be non-political this is bullshit and the the inclination of course is that you just run away and you splinter off and you form a little a little cell with your like-minded cohorts and you just try to keep your head down that's kind of the thing it's like i don't i don't really judge them so much for just pursuing this course of action because what else are they going to do if you're already outnumbered in these these church denominations like the methodists really what choice do you have but to leave Inevitably, they're going I mean, to eventually get you one way or the other. Catholics in our milieu are constantly arguing with we're constantly arguing with each other whether or not we should stay, you know, stay by the Vatican or become set of anchitists. And when you're in that position, that is not a good place to be. When you're basically you're there's an internal dialogue going on uh, amongst your own about, uh, well, maybe we should become one of the. Become yeah, one yeah. Of these so, so it's literally should we run to the life pod now? 
Yeah, should we, like well, like literally, should we become schismatics? I mean, the, they, <laughs> technically, the church, the church, the church schism for like it's or it's like the uh, office space being like like <laughs> no, they're the one that schism. They're the ones that are schismatics. They're the ones who suck. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, because that's the, the schismatics, not me. Yeah, Which, yeah. I mean, like, the, te- technically, I agree with, but yeah, like, majority, again, like, when you're talking when you're talking amongst each other and you're and you're debating this, that's not a good place to be in. No, no, it's not good, especially because the majority gets to determine like what the institution represents. So yeah, it sucks. It's yeah. not a good position, and, especially yeah. And the reason why I met, I read that Orwell quote is because people in congregations are just like the vast majority of them are just going to go along to get along. That's just how it, that's how it always is. They're going to go along to get along. Maybe they'll trickle out and that's, you know, that's why you end up with the hospice church situation, but they're not going to like, they almost never form a, as political counter elites to recapture the institution. They just trickle out. Yeah. I I actually, I I watched a video earlier, hilariously from a YouTube account called redeemed zoomer. And he had a reconquista, reconquista plan that he was enacting in which he was trying to get more active in taking over various congregations. And, and he, he had some, some observations, which are going to be kind of true, which, okay, uh, generally because of the declining church size and congregation size, you can quickly climb up the ladder in terms of positions within a church. But he was remarking on. Uh, being in a very conservative, right-leaning church, and one member of the congregation was wanting to do something for Pride Month, and literally everyone else was afraid to say anything. And it finally took like one church elder to stand up to her before anyone would rally around this guy and put a stop to this nonsense. Yeah. It's, it's uh, like, they've, they've done psychological experiments that basically show that once you get – like the only way you can really get opposition to it – to an enforced view going is if one per basically if one person speaks up and then one other person backs them up. Yep. Like you need two people. You need you need the one who speaks up and you need the one who can uh, back them up. And that's one of the problems we're in right now is that we do have people who will speak up, but rarely do we have the second person who will back yeah, them up. Yeah. No, I think there's actually a good demonstration. Of this it was uh, it was is Eric Stryker. Uh, dealing with a Republican and then a member of the community that he was representing joined in with Eric Stryker. Yeah. And it was, it was an amazing thing to watch. It's like, that is what you need. You need somebody to raise hell and then someone else needs to join in. And then before you know it, you've got an entire mob. Everybody romanticizes the man, you know, the, the lone man who speaks up and it's not without merit, but we yeah. need more, we need more romanticizations of the person that, that says, I agree with him. Yeah, yeah, because the, the little the first man one he's, just stands up. Yeah, he, he's just striking the match. Yeah. That's all his well, job is: is to light the tinder. Do you have any final thoughts on the? Have we have we sufficiently made enough people mad? Have I have I have I become? Well, so that's my that's too, my have that's I been my too final Catholic thought. on this show, or have I, have I not been Catholic enough? I always get I, don't, I always get one of the two ways. I don't think we made enough people mad. I felt like this was very mild mannered and. Even handed, and I, I, the Christians are just not going to be frustrated enough. Well, they just don't like us, anyways. So, I mean, <laughs> those, those, a lot of them are just pretty mad at us, anyway. So, I guess they, 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 they started listening to it mad, they listened to it mad, and then they finished listening to it mad. And that's, yeah, well, that, that's my goal. All right. <laughs> I feel, I do feel like we've been fair. I mean, but, but we're also, again, we're just trying, you and I had different perspectives and we're just trying to cover this from a sociological, historical analysis, basically. 
Yeah, yeah. And the factual analysis is the churches are in major decline and due to the psychology of the participants in this declining atmosphere, liberal and left-wing churches are just going to take over. It's going to be a complete rout, a total slaughter. There's, there's not going to be like an actual civil war or schism over this. It's just going to be very one-sided. And before you know it, all the major churches, every big church building you see is going to have a pride flag in front of it. That's just how things are going to shake out. Now, I don't think Chris, obviously I don't think Christianity will ever go away. Uh, oh, and, no. and then I'm, ta- and I'm talking about like an actual small O Orthodox Christianity. Not, uh, I don't think that it'll ever go away, but I I've said this for years. I think we're going to be going through a lean period. It's, well, I, I, it's just, it's just unavoidable. Like, the, the, well, just my all the factors are be, running against us. My question to you would be, um, do religions survive the collapse of their civilization or do they just generally go down with it? Uh, it depends. Uh, it kind of depends on the collapse. I mean, like the, uh, <laughs> certainly the Aztec religion didn't really survive the collapse <laughs> of that empire, that empire, but they're trying to bring uh, it back. <laughs> I mean, but Christianity survived the collapse of the Roman empire or the, at least the Western Roman empire. Now you could say, well, cause it survived in the East that already had, like there was power. There were alternate power bases that already being set up. And you could some, even argue, some that, argue it calls the collapse though. Well, yeah, I mean, that, it, it, that's it's actually what collapsed. The religion that died was religion of the Romans. Like some people would make yeah. that argument. Yeah. I mean, that's the Gibbons pill right there that Christianity calls the, the, the collapse. But, um, I'm not here to litigate that issue. Uh, I mean, Christianity certainly survived the Western uh, Empire collapse and arguably grew stronger because it spread more after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. So, uh, well, I mean, I, 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 think it, I think it. I think it depends on the nature of the religion itself. I, I think. I think Christianity has a better chance of of never fully disappearing due to the fact it's written down in a book and it was so widespread. It is yeah. everywhere. I, I think it has a better chance than most religions of surviving forever. Well, that, but. That's the point I've always made when I when I when we've done these when there's been religion threads that pop up and the thing about paganism comes up because like, I don't I don't have this antagonistic attitude that um, some Christians have towards quote, you know towards neo pagans just because like there's just it's to me it's just it just doesn't make sense anyways because you, I you're basically trying to reconstruct what was essentially for for most of its religious expression a set of evolving traditions and rituals which yeah. you can certainly do and you can certainly try to do but paganism was never systematized in we, 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 as western man we're always going to think in a certain christian sense because christianity systematized religion in a way that just we previously weren't uh, our cultures weren't really used to like it was it was paganism was basically it could it could differ from place to place there were different traditions there were different gods and people were very flexible on this kind of stuff which is why actually christianity was able to spread the way that it did because you had like pagan emperors like uh, julian the apostate that was basically trying to create a systematized paganism and who was basically persecuting Christians. And there were a lot of pagans that didn't like that. One is like, hey, we're not like, what's this weird system of, of paganism you've created? This this is like, this is not what my great grandfather, my grandfather practiced. This means nothing to me. That's not my traditions. That's not my gods. That's like, what is this? And also, a lot of them didn't understand what Christianity really was. And so to them, the Christians were just another religion like just a different set of traditions and beliefs and practices and they didn't understand like well why are you picking on these people 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean obviously, I think, there were, obviously there were pagans that hated Christians, but there were a lot of pagans that were just like indifferent. It's like, I don't, what's, why are you guys getting your, you know, getting your skirts, your togas up about these people? Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason they're doing the modern context is pagans are another very small niche group and it's okay to get in little spats with them, even though it's not the pagans that are coming to your church and putting up a rainbow flag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and they're statistically meaningless, so it's easy to beat right. up on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, well, the the real problem is actually within your own ranks, but that's a much harder battle to fight, as we can see yeah. that everybody generally wants to retreat from that particular conflict. I'm not interested in telling people what to what religion or or or, or non religion they're uh, that they should practice. Obviously, you know, I have my perspective, I have my set of beliefs. This is. And yeah, and I, I don't know what you would do in that situation where you're looking at your church as being taken over by libtards and they're putting up the gay flags everywhere, like to to mount a successful defense against that while also simultaneously seeing your religion decline in, t- in terms of just membership across the board and having a smaller congregation. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty tough fight. Without a genuine political movement, I would prefer like beliefs just be personal and private because I don't want to support pseudo political movements. Now, if there's a genuine political movement that's about correcting that would uh, correct these institutional captures, then I'm all for it. But what we're often fed is the simulated pseudo political movement that you know it's much like how we're you know like go go join the Republican Party type politics. So I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, right. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I su- I I support my uh, my Catholic brethren that are fighting against the rot within within our church. But best of luck. Before, yeah, I know. That's uh, <laughs> believe me. Thank you. That's I, I, we're going to need it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 happening to all of them. So it's just yeah. a, It's also like I why I also why I hate like. I hate I I really do hate when people like do like like uh, church like church gloating like look at look at the state of your church look at the state of like guys we're all in this together like right right. I hate I hate I hate I hate to uh, I I hate to do what Benjamin Franklin mean but like we must we we must hang together or we're going to be sodomized separately. Yeah, yeah, because as, as we have had many conversations about this, when any church you can think of, if you come out there and you start explicitly stating your political beliefs, you are getting kicked out. Yeah, I've seen it happen literally every second. Every second, there's no church I have not seen this happen in. There's there's not been a single exception to this. It's actually kind of amazing how I've seen this happen in so many different churches. It's like wow, it, like I, I that's a, that's a new one. I haven't seen that one yet. Wow. Yeah, I thought they cared about my immortal soul. Go to hell. <laughs> All right. Well, now, now do you feel like we pissed off enough people? Yeah, I think we're good. We're good. <laughs> Stay mad. All right. Well, maybe maybe we'll next week we'll we'll go lighter and maybe we'll look at some uh, some gaming data. We'll do something like that, or maybe we'll do the collapse stuff. I don't know. We'll see what we'll see what next week brings for yeah, us. Yeah, I want I want to do that Palladium magazine thing at some point. I, I that's, okay. uh, that's literally stuff we've been talking about forever. So. And that'll save me prep for next week, so maybe we'll just do that. All right. Well, uh, have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.